Hi, and welcome to episode 17 of the first series of the Dorset Growth Hub podcast. This is the final episode of the series. This episode has to be one of my favourites, where I ask questions to three of our guests, Cass Payton, Sammy Kingston and Jenny Quigley-Jones, and we talk all things future trends. They answer your questions as a live panel and dive deeper into the topics mentioned in their episodes, from the future of retail, working with influencers and the growth of immersive tech. If you are looking for more support for your business, head to our website, dorsetgrowthhub.co.uk, go check out our events and grants we have available at the moment. We really appreciate your support for this podcast, so if you enjoy the episodes, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe. So thanks again for listening. Don't forget you can listen to all the speakers in their own episodes on the podcast feed if you haven't already. Now over to our panel. Hello and welcome to our final day of Beyond 2020. Thank you for joining us. So I'm Mary, I'm the Marketing Manager at Dorset Growth Hub and I'll be your host for today. I'm here with our panel, Cass and Jenny and hopefully Sam. Yeah, Sammy is in the audience so we're just making her a panellist now. And yeah, I think we can get started. So if the panel wouldn't mind introducing themselves to get going, I think hopefully you recognise them from the episodes and hopefully you've had a listen but if not you can go catch them after this I'm sure you recognize my voice from the beginning of every episode which is very annoying to hear yourself back that many times so Jenny if we start with you if you could just say a quick hello and tell everyone who you are. Yeah hey everyone Um, my name is Jennifer Quigley-Jones and I'm the CEO and founder of Digital Voices we are a YouTube specialist influence marketing agency based in London so sadly not Dorset We've been going for about three and a half years and have clients like Unilever, Booking.com, Trainline, the NHS, quite random clients, a lot for an assortment. So yeah, really excited to, to ha- hear your questions and have a chat with a great panel. Thank you, Jenny. And we'll go to you next, Cass. Hi, yeah, I'm Cass Payton, the founder and CEO of Onbuy.com. Um, we're launching the world's furthest reaching marketplace. We've so far UK only and growing really quickly and look forward to your questions. Thank you, Cass. And hi, Samantha. Hi, everyone. Hopefully you can hear me. I'm in a a noisy Brighton room. um, So apologize if you hear any sirens outside. But um, I'm Sammy. I am the co-founder of a company called Virtual Umbrella. Um, we do marketing and consultancy for the virtual reality industry. So basically, I get to play with tech and I'm really looking forward to this panel. Cool. Thank you, Samantha. So we've got our first question. So Anonymous is asking any tips for managing relationships with influencers and struggling to get them to do what they what was agreed. So I guess, Jenny, if we go to you first on that one, that'd be good. Yes. Firstly, I hope you had a contract. I'm sure you did. And I'm sure you wrote everything in it. And the influencers just aren't listening or reading the contract, which happens quite a lot. We also find sometimes they don't read briefs. So a couple of things you can do. Firstly, if you have any video assets you can give them, that really helps. A lot of YouTube creators or influencers don't think, tend to think more visually. So they're much likely to do something, say, in the right way or properly if they see it visually. So if it's like using a product or how you want the product to be featured, send them an example video. Sometimes we actually create our own example videos for them. I'd also say get them on a call if you can. I know it's really tough. They're often quite slippery to pin down. That makes them sound like fish. They're great people. Um, 
often they can be quite difficult to pin down but make sure that you just get them on like a half hour call and then everything's much quicker I feel like you can spend a lot of time back and forth with influencers via email and then you can do the honest thing of saying look you haven't fulfilled what's in your contract you haven't fulfilled what's in the brief so we can't pay you until you do this and it's it's never nice to have that conversation as a brand and someone who wants to maintain a positive relationship with them but you have to sometimes assert that like they haven't done their part of the bargain so um yeah as long as you're paying them and this is why you should pay them in something rather than product pay them money not product because you get much more control and you can hold out payment till the end so it's right hopefully you're paying them and then that's my advice video calls and video examples thank you jenny Cass, do you um work with any influencers that on by have you had experience yeah, we, 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 we do. And it's something that we do engage with, although obviously our brands that retail through us typically do most of the work here. But OnBuy is certainly involved. And, and I think Jennifer did a really good job of outlining what our marketing team do, which is essentially try and pin them down to what's expected, both visually and with we draw out schemas in terms of potentially what tweets, tweets should look like, what messaging should look like. And, and ideally, if it's video related, they'll They'll storyboard what the video should ideally look like, but you know, some some influencers have their own flair, let's say, and you know, you, you just have to wait to see what you get back. But you, you're trying to box it off in that way to come up with really trying to shape what you want from a relationship, and then coming back to what you've contra- contractually agreed is key. Thank you, and Sammy. Do you have anything to add on that? Do you know what? I've not had the luxury of working with any influencers, actually. I think because in terms of like the VR world and immersive world, they tend to go to the big products. So they don't tend to come to me. But I do agree with the other two. It's as long as you've got a contract in place and you've got a plan and communication is always key with this kind of stuff anyway. So, yeah, these guys know what they're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So next question. How would I use VR as a small business? So I guess, Sammy, that one's for you. So as a small business, as I've said in the previous podcast, um, when it comes to immersive tech, there has to be a reason for you to be using it. As a small business, I would definitely recommend trying out doing it internally first. There's a lot of higher companies out there that are willing to work with you in terms of like a partnership. If you want to grab a couple of 360 cameras, give it a go, do some filming internally and have some real good breakdown, like internal conversations with your team and figure out why you why you want to make this content and how are you going to get it to your audience I think that's kind of like the the first sort of steps with any sort of you know going to any kind of emerging technology especially for a small business because VR and AR are quite a big investment so it's good to kind of experiment in-house reach out to maybe some other small businesses that maybe have started looking at it as well and experiment experiment's the best way and also don't feel like you're restricted by um, being a small business at all because a lot of 360 content let's say can be made on a quite a small budget so yeah I'd experiment reach out to others have a look and see what's going on in the industry right now as well that's probably my starting points to start with. Thank you um, just to add to that there is for people that are based in Dorset there's a Centre VR in Bournemouth and I know they were offering free sort of trial sessions for local businesses so if you're interested I would go check out Centre VR. Jenny have you had any experience working with VR in any of your campaigns? We did we helped with a 360 video and it wasn't as difficult as we 
thought um, an influencer basically was filmed in 360 uh, to try and, and it was 360 audio as well, because it was trying to show sound. It, it was a quite a complicated process. It wasn't as complicated in actual execution as I thought, because we worked with a film team that knew how to do that. And so luckily I didn't have to get too clued up, but we find that I think similar to what Sammy said, if you don't know exactly why you're using VR or how the experience is going to work, it can be something brands get distracted by and throw money at sometimes that maybe isn't necessary. So I would think really carefully and have a purpose before you do it because not that many people use VR or 360 video and it's available on like YouTube as a normal viewer. <laughs> and I guess um, if people want to buy the headsets, maybe they can go to onbuy.com. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds good yeah we we're killing it today great <laughs> so that, yeah oh go on Cass if you no know. I was going to say my, my input is more around selling VR so I'm not going to be <laughs> much of a much of an include on this one okay so um the next question we've got is what should we do to be ready to export our goods to Europe after Brexit I mean it's not something that we've covered in our podcast this week and I know Nick Gregory, our operations director, is going to start again his Friday catch-ups to cover all the changes um, that are happening at the moment. So maybe we can cover that next week. Do you guys have anything to add on what, you, what you're what you doing to be ready for Brexit as a business? Um, apparently services are much more complicated than goods and goods are slightly more obvious and it is quite scary because we have clients in uh, Amsterdam and in Eastern Europe as well and so um, what I'm doing at the moment is reading a lot of regulation and being a bit scared but um, I'm sure Cass has a better answer because uh, you're looking at expanding globally right? Yeah that's right um, you know the, the whole Brexit thing is I, I had a, a joke with with some of our team yesterday and said the old saying you know don't kick a man when he's down you know the, we all thought that we were dealing with the pandemic there was a lot of belief that a deal was essentially done or very close to being done, and then all of a sudden it's you know reversed, and 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 now it might you know now it may there's a maybe, and there's talk of a trade deal with Japan, and and everyone no one really knows exactly what is going on, which makes things incredibly difficult to plan for. I think luckily quite a lot of businesses had already undertaken a large amount of research when no deal was on the table previously, and you know we 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 did too, you know in terms of the infrastructure, but. It's where every business is going to go through its own challenges here. But the, the one thing that I will say is that we're very lucky that it's a level playing field. We're all in the same boat, you know, whether it's services or goods, everyone's got to go through a change. And because it affects everybody, you know, I'm hoping that the that everyone could be extremely resilient. And I think that everyone's in this together and sharing um, what they're learning as they go. And there's several companies that we're connected to that we're all in talks about how things are going to shape up, trying to make sure that, we give the right advice, but at the moment it's incredibly difficult because that advice has changed so much over a short period of time. Thank you, Cass. And just to add for resources locally, Bournemouth, um, Dorset Chamber, sorry, they have a Brexit advisor and I know there's um, people working for DIT locally as well. So I think Rich has put a link in the chat for Centre VR, so he might add links for those as well if you want more resources around Brexit. So Back to our topics that we've covered in the podcast. So to Jenny, is there a role for influencers in a B2B market where the key drivers are functionality and cost? 
Yes, I, I think B2B influence marketing is something a lot of people have struggled to crack. And there's no agency that I'd say cracks it. There's a lot of like people who say they specialize in LinkedIn and um, LinkedIn, a mixture of paid and organic, which is part of it. But we found we work with Fast Hosts, who are a UK web IT, like an IT service provider, and their audience is entirely B2B. So they were like, we will spend every customer is so valuable because they're a pivotal IT decision maker in the UK for a company. So that's who we need to reach. and We'll spend a lot of budget reaching them. And we actually ran a YouTube campaign for them. We've just, we're finishing our second campaign where we just went after technical audiences. So we were like, right, what do these IT professionals watch? And we um, we came up with loads of STEM content, like science, tech, engineering, maths, like a lot of uh, very geeky, very coding content, like brilliant stuff. And all those videos pushed to competition where if you're in the UK and can answer a highly technical question written by that YouTuber, you can enter the chance to win. This last campaign is like your dream computer setup worth up to five grand. So we're finding a way to filter to those key decision makers by going for initially a broad scope and then narrowing the focus through um, designing competition campaigns. So it is possible. I would say it takes a willingness to do slightly larger budget campaigns and also go for large reach and then find a way to narrow it down because you every customer that you could potentially miss out on is worth a lot of money for b2b so it's possible but um for youtube and linkedin i wouldn't say for instagram but it is technically possible thank you jenny and thanks john for your question so the next question is from rich my colleague at dg8 he it's a question for sammy so adaptability is so important right now. How do you think VR can play a part and help us all be more flexible slash adaptable? I love that word. <laughs> that's like that's my job on a daily basis is to adapt. Yeah, um, same at the moment. Yeah, I, I swear my my role has changed from all sorts over the last couple of years. So yeah, um, especially this year, I, I swear I've um, I've changed from all sorts in a very short amount of time. But yeah, I think um, adaptability is really important. I mean, looking at you know what we're doing right now, Zoom calls and things like that have kind of really sort of changed the way. In terms of like my sector, in terms of immersive, it's been really interesting because from my perspective, I've kind of expected us to kind of really leap forward and go right. We're going to dominate this kind of space. And, you know, bring in like social spaces and social uh, social VR spaces, which are really easy to use. So I think it's kind of been a bit of a, um, a mixed bag. There are some great products out there, some great uh, platforms, but I'm still kind of waiting for things to pop up. And I think um, the industry is still experimenting, experimenting internally with that kind of stuff. But I think we're we're very good at adapting and very, and very good at adapting very quickly. So a lot of the companies that I work with have kind of really jumped on the bandwagon of providing um, products and VR and AR, which work really well for their clients. If it's to do with like training, for example, is like the big thing right now. So um, for, for lots of large businesses that can't get together and can't work in the same room right now, we're kind of pushing, you know, pushing areas and making sure that there's VR content that can be used for those kind of things. So, yeah, it's forever changing um, and every week is very different. But I'm hoping that, you know, over the next six months, we're going to see a lot more that comes out and a lot more content and a lot more products that can be used really easily. Because that's the whole thing with VR and AR. I want it to be an easy process and an easy thing to pick up and use 
for either entertainment or for you know internal business things so that's kind of yeah my my thought on that okay thank you so the next question is kind of a bit all over the place today because we're covering three topics where the the other q a's we've just covered one topic so there's loads of questions coming up um the next one's about how can we find more distributors abroad um Cass I'll ask you that one distributors uh well that's interesting I mean we don't really work with distributors. I mean, we work with retailers, so it's probably not the best question for us. But what I will say is, you know, in, in, for, for OnBuy, it's, it's, it's a totally different approach internationally. But we do partner with a large number of infrastructure partners and channel solutions and various, you know, couriers, for example, internationally. So we're always working internationally. For us, it's just it's research in terms of looking into a geo target and trying to pick out who the strategic partners for us need to be. And then from a retailer's perspective, that's a bit easier for us now because when we launch into new countries, we already have a large number of products available from sellers of other countries. So the uptake of new retailers is quite simple because you're, you're kind of saying, well, you're already quite close to the consumer. You know, It's time to get on board with OnBuy and, and, re- and hopefully reduce the cost of the consumer because you're closer already. But, you know, in order to do that, we have to buy data and try and understand the lay of retailers and, and, and get into a, a bit of an understanding of, of the, the volume of retailers in the market and what their demographics are, what products they sell. And there's a whole research piece that goes on that is, is going on because we're about to scale into a large number of countries. But, yeah, it's a, there's, there's nothing like hard work. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Thank you. Um... The next question is for all of you, really. It's from Claire Main. Hi, Claire. She asked, really positive news from you all this week. How are you finding recruitment? Is it still important for you to recruit locally, local to you, to enable face-to-face meetings? Maybe not now, but going forward, or looking beyond geographic borders? So, um, Jenny, if we start with you. We were just talking before this started about Jenny's office, so. Yes, we've we've had an interesting time because we initially... At the beginning of lockdown, we really um, we had no idea what was going to happen because we had a lot of travel clients. But luckily, our tech clients stepped in and we won a lot of new clients. So the, the agency has been growing and we advertised six roles at once. And I think we're going to end up hiring probably about 10, mm-hmm. bef- like in total between March and the end of 2020. But um, the hiring we're doing... Firstly, so many talented applicants. Like now, it's so disappointing to see this economic situation. It's horrendous. But we have so much talent available, and the people applying are, it's really hard to choose between them. Um, sorry about the background noise. It's really hard to choose between them. Um, we are finding that we're offering it to people who are working remotely and planning on staying working remotely. So we've just got rid of our office as like a permanent hub because we think by the time we get back there anyway, at the end of 2021, we'd have outgrown it. So I think instead we're going to do um, co-working spaces, like a nice co-working space that everyone can drop into as and when they need. And then recruiting, we're hoping to let people have flexibility. One of my team said, Honestly, he was like, honestly, I don't want to come into the office until there's a vaccine, no matter what the government guidelines say. Technically, he's being entirely rational. There's no reason he should come into the office if COVID still exists and there's no cure and it's an issue. So we had to quite quickly say, right, are we happy to have people who are going to work remotely potentially for the next few years? 
And our answer is yes. Like as long as we can do video calls and they can do their job, we are more than happy to work with the best talent, no matter where they're, where they are. It's nice to meet people in person, but I, I don't think it's necessary anymore. Thank you. And Cass, um, what's your opinion? And I've seen on LinkedIn, you've been doing huge recruitment drives recently. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we have. I mean, Onby was caught in a uh, in both a COVID impact and also, you know, a fundraising period. So, you know, as we hit March, we closed the seed investment round. And then by the time we got to June, we actually closed our Series A fund round. And throughout this period, if we look back to February, we had 14 staff members. And then if you look now in October, we're 52 staff members. It's been one heck of a ramp up. So, you know, we, we've we've had to go through all kinds of development during this period. We didn't even have enough desks and space to put desks when we first entered lockdown. So the challenges for us were quite far reaching, even trying to secure builders and 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 get office infrastructure made. The office behind me here did not exist in February. It was a warehouse. You know, and we've had to do so much to scale. We've had to build bathrooms, build new kitchens, build new meeting spaces. It's just been crazy. But the ramp up of all of this was a challenge. And then on top of that, you've got your distance in your space, your spacing, your remote working. We do see a big change since the impact of COVID. We see that, you know, not quite so ad hoc as, as Jen- Jennifer was pointing out, but, you know, we do already have quite a large number of remote workers and we do support remote and we are actively seeking to have, you know, people join. It's been one of the good things to come out of the COVID situation is that companies are a lot more you know, willing to look at remote working as a norm, as a standard, which I'll admit, you know, we we were hesitant when we first, well, before this COVID situation, we were hesitant to have somebody working in Glasgow or somebody working in, you know, Nottinghamshire, working for on by permanently. The, the first question would be, well, how often should they attend the office? You know, but it has changed. And, and, and now we're more we're more um, we're more comfortable with it. We have a large number of people permanently at home. And the people who do need to be in the office, we still, we do still believe in requiring offices for certain things. You know, we have collaborative team meetings around design or whatever. They're, they're very difficult to do through remote. And maybe one day we'll get there. But at the moment, we do still require the office. But we're, we've probably got 34 people in the office at the moment. And um, we, you know, we... we We've got 20 more roles out, so it will be easily half of the team not in the workplace. It's been an interesting, uh, it's been an interesting year. We were finding um, the savings from the office because also you'll build an office, but you'll expand beyond it, but you don't need all the space. The savings from not having to build all the extra bits or pay for extra rent, especially in London, means we can do really nice, like when we're allowed to, team meetings. So we were like, okay, so we can spend more on our clients to treat them. We can spend more on our team to make sure everyone feels valued. And I mean, if you half the cost of your office, then you can, uh, that's a lot of lunches. Like that. (laughs) So you guys are more open to hiring national now that people are working from home, because that was the next question, but I guess you've already answered that. The interesting one is hiring international. So we're, um, we have a, some we were looking at hiring who, is furloughed but during furlough went to look after her grandmother in Japan so she still has an address in the UK but she was like we need we need Japanese um, speakers she's great for the job and so we're trying to work out like hiring someone who's technically not in the country but is offering to work full or part-time 
it's a really interesting challenge because she's still technically a UK resident. That's fine. But how much are you going to allow your staff to be on a different time zone is a huge debate that we've been having. Yeah, I've seen, um, I think, a few countries have put on a marketing like Barbados. You can go work there for a year and there's all these visas coming out to go work for amazing places. So maybe that's the future. (laughs) Yeah. So next question is for you, Sammy. Will virtual trade shows significantly significantly erode the need for live face-to-face trade shows when we are able to travel travel again? Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good question. Well, so my kind of events and conferences disappeared <laughs> in March. Um, and for a lot of people that kind of um, across industries, let's say, that were getting into like showcasing their VR and AR and all that kind of stuff, uh, conferences and trade shows were huge. You know, I was going to things like Digital Construction Week, um, you know, and then I was going to an education conference um, completely across the sectors. And then, of course, yeah, March hit and everything has kind of been um, scrapped. And it's been interesting to kind of watch the way that people are now trying to, you know, recreate those, but in a virtual space. So, for example, I've just I've just finished two weeks at the BFI normally not really a conference but they do obviously London Film Festival uh, every year and this year was the first time that they were like we can't have anyone in the building this is how we're going to approach it so they built a a virtual platform where you could access the content at home Um, for a film festival that works great but if you look at um, something like Digital Construction Week where normally you're in a room full of diggers and uh, big tvs and things like that it doesn't it's a bit of a different world so i've seen most most people have kind of approached the case of you know inviting those clients that they might have met at those events into like a private meeting in a virtual space maybe via zoom if they have to or via like a social vr platform um that's actually worked quite well because i think people are more willing to reach out and actually find those people that they might have met at these events and it also um those particular events that are you know trying to um make sure they keep their customer basis are also trying to reach out and find the best ways to keep people connecting but it's a real tricky one like i don't know you guys you guys have probably all seen um events across your areas have completely gone downhill but I think maybe with the immersive tech industry it's kind of a good area to experiment a little bit more and to you know be able to invite those clients into a really cool uh, conference space in a headset and go right let's talk let's get some figures in front of everybody let's get some you know be able to showcase what they've been working on so and it's just really figuring out how you want to do that and how that's really going to work for their particular client or for their particular audience but yeah it's been weird without events very very weird but it was nice to do the two weeks at the BFI and actually do something physical but again obviously COVID safe and everything so it was a very very different type of event for me. Yeah I saw some of your Twitter posts so quite entertaining. (laughs) Glad to finish the week it looked good. Um, Yeah it was good. Yeah, but with online events, like this is what we've kind of tried to do this week is offer people content that they can consume in their own place because I think everyone's kind of fed up with Zoom. I know we're doing this now, but to explore what's gonna what it's gonna be like in the future and how events can develop, I think it's really exciting. Okay, next question. One for you, Cass. How can Dorset be a champion for on by? That's quite a nice question. That's an interesting question. 
I mean, Dorset is a champion for Mumbai. I mean, we, we, what do you mean? We, we, we seem to be one of the fastest growing companies in the South and certainly Dorset. And we're trying our best to, to really mention Dorset in everything that we do. So I'd say that Mumbai is a champion for Dorset and, and, and very much likewise. I mean, we, we, we're doing our best here. I mean, we, uh, <laughs> the Dorset Business Awards. There's a funny one because we didn't get in last year. Um, we're gonna, uh-huh. we're gonna, we're, we're gonna apply this year. I think we applied for something like the fastest growing, but we or, or something. But we we were we were overlooked and not shortlisted. So we'll, we'll work on that one this year. <laughs> I oh, think. Sorry, that, I don't it, know anyone that works. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I mean, all joking aside, I think you know we 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 do the best we can in, in Dorset already, and we, we have a, a big pull. Um, we, we try and use as many local partners as we can when, when, when we're choosing like PR and things. And, you know, unless we, we don't feel that the experience is there. Um, and that is the case sometimes in Dorset, you know, it is a small place and, and a lot of the skill, skilled workers, we, we have to pull in from further afield sometimes, but we're doing our best to train in Dorset too. And, and I do think that longer term on by could turn into quite a, you know, a popular place to work in 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 Dorset. So we're we're bringing we're making people move. We've got people moving from London. We've got people moving from Basingstoke and the other way. You know, Weymouth. So it, to, towards Pool, I mean. Um, so it's a really it's a really interesting thing. I don't know what Dorset could do. Maybe you could come up with some some other suggestions for us. If the uh, if the balloon was still flying, we might sponsor the balloon or something, so that when people come, we're always in the photographs. Uh, I, for some reason it just brought up this thought of when I was in Indonesia they have all these big posters and billboards everywhere saying like Uber's like banned here because they want oh, really? to use their local taxi service so maybe you can put like you know Am- Amazon's banned in Dorset I'm not, not yeah. sure how that's going to work but yeah I'm sure they have the might to uh, cause us some real financial concern but you know, it's true. You know, Dorset can can get behind us, and 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 we're here. We're creating jobs. We're trying to grow local and um, and recruit. And we've already said, for example, you know, when the the furlough, sorry, not the furlough, the um, redundancies were kicking in at the end of furlough. We we've been doing things to try and get apprenticeships, retraining. We started to launch Kickstarter roles for graduates who haven't got into the space yet you know it's going to be a tough year i think in terms of uh roles and and things within well nationwide but dorset especially you know and we're we're doing our best here to try and get as much local talent as possible so you know anyone repping us back would be greatly appreciated thank you and yeah we'll do our best to support you Kaz. as dorset growth hub i don't know about the rest of dorset but i'm sure we can try <laughs> thank <laughs> um, you so next question, I think, is for all of you. So what do you think is the next game-changing technology for businesses? So if we start with you, Jenny. Oh, big question. I, you know, it's funny. There's, there's a lot that, if you look at video calling, that's changed. There's a lot in, in terms of, I like love Sammy's mention of VR and training. I think that's going to be a huge challenge. So I think a lot of people have immediately flocked to video calls and quizzes and all this stuff online but I think we've forgotten in that like immediate stress we've forgotten often like personal development or um some of the the kind of more culture pieces that go around companies so I think if we could find some way of um 
actually training people or actually creating immersive experiences that are really fun and cohesive and community building, I think that would be a huge, huge change, whether that's for big events, whether that's for training, or whether that's just for team brainstorms together. I think that would be massive. The DTC movement's huge as well. So one of the biggest game changes is obviously um, some like stuff like direct consumer branding and sales. So switching kind of retailers power. I think that's going to be quite interesting as well. But yeah, I'd say our next big challenge for tech is how to really build cohesion and in-person connections, but whilst we're really apart. So I think we all got bored of house party. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. Um, Sammy, what about you? Um, yeah, I, I'd agree actually, especially in terms of as everyone is, a lot of people are still remote working and it's like filling the gaps of what's missing right now. So um, there's quite a few uh, businesses down in Brighton that are looking at um, particular HR training or diversity training um, within particular applications. So not necessarily VR or AR or the immersive stuff, but there are people that are trying to explore ways of providing that kind of service or providing those, you know, very human things that we need, but in a kind of remote environment. So there's a company called Make Real down in Brighton. They've made a VR experience, which is literally about diversity and how, people um, engage and react in particular scenarios in the off in the workplace which is really fascinating so things like that I think is just helping us kind of reach the gap but also using it appropriately and yeah just sort of filling those little gaps of things that are missing you know and you know looking at the long term of this you know I know a lot of businesses that aren't looking at having people back in the office until the end of next year now so things like that is just sort of um yeah appreciating the technology and how it can really fit and I'm also kind of looking at things like sounds a bit boring but like things that you know uh processes internally (laughs) um things that can really help me with my teams and stuff like that so don't know really if that's innovative but stuff like that gets me excited (laughs) about how everyone was like siloed so how um, social media was making us siloed and we were only seeing within our own echo chambers Being at home all the time, we've stopped talking about it, but we have got so popular. Like, even if we watch more online content, we still, like, if you look at, I don't know if anyone's really into Bon Appetit, which is a big food YouTube channel in the US, and they had a lot of um, scandals. They had a very white team, well, a lot of racial issues there. They've now switched their presenters and switched the people heading the channel and to be more diverse and reflect what we say we want in society. And the views have really dropped. And it's the fact like people are choosing to watch the same content, to read the same news. And we're so much more physically isolated that we need to find some form of tech to break it because there's a huge cost to society and community. And yeah, Yeah. Sammy reminded me of that. Thank you. Um, Cass, do you have anything to add about game, game changing technology? Yeah, I'm I'm quite enjoying listening to everyone else here because you know for us it's it's very relative. Everything that you see is relative to your own market. In our in our side, the the game changing technologies are more around e-commerce in terms of internationally understanding product. I mean, one of the things that we see as a big problem for e-commerce retailers is really understanding uh, cross-border and the impacts of cross-border and customs and duties and VAT and legislation, digital service taxes, e-commerce taxes. Various things that retailers just ask us all the time, you know, what what what's it going to cost me? What where do I even start when I'm selling internationally? You know, I've got a I've got a courier price from Royal Mail 
But outside of that, I don't know what's going to happen when I do this. Am I going to end up in a problem? And, you know, you can see how the VAT rules have significantly changed over this period. And you're left with, you know, a large number of regulations kicking in. You know, you sell this much in Germany, you need to be registered for VAT. This much in Poland, you need to be registered for VAT. And then all of a sudden there's these e-commerce taxes with Donald Trump declaring war on tech and various things kicking in. And I think, you know, technology to bridge and ease the understanding in the, the way that businesses can really list a product. I mean, imagine a solution where you list a product on a marketplace like Onbuy and, you know, the marketplace or the, the, the technology product is really seeking to show you what, you know, you're going to get charged and, and how things are going to manage internationally. This is interesting for us. The other big shift in our space is payments. So I don't know how many of you have come across open banking recently. But open banking is something that's really interesting because, you know, what you don't realize sometimes as a consumer is that with every product you're buying, you take a view where you feel, well, the business has got to pay credit card fees. And it's like, no, you're wrong. You're paying the credit card fees. It's built into the margin that you're paying for the product, especially in an online space, because, you know, when you're super competitive to drive down pricing, the credit card fees can't be budged on anyone's part. So it's just eating out of the, you know, everyone's margin. And open banking is really bringing a potential change here where you could go onto a website like OnBuy and you could find a product and you could buy it and essentially log into your bank and press pay. Uh, all done easily, not with all of the whole clunky login that you need to go and find a card reader and all of this kind of stuff. Really intuitive. And the charge for that is pence not pounds you know that it's not a percentage of a transaction and on a hundred pound product it could literally be you know a tenth of the price of the, the transaction fee so you start to see impacts there i think you know the the e-commerce scaling these are the two things that really stand out to me as potentially really exciting things over the next 12 months thank you by the international payment oh my goodness like on your side entirely we have tried so many different payment systems internationally because we pay creators across the world. And like, if you use it through a traditional bank, they put so many charges on additional charges for you and the receiver. And mm -hmm. then the rates are really low. Yeah. I, we, we've been experimenting a lot and it's been a complete nightmare as a business. So thanks for bringing that up. Ka. Thank you. So next question is for you, Jenny. Um, do you see a direct correlation between the release of the YouTubers' videos and the organ organization slash company they're promoting, especially when the audience age can be so young? Um, so uh, I think the audience age being young is, is definitely a myth. So YouTube reaches 96% of UK adults and on average UK adults watch 46 minutes a day. So I think the idea of like YouTube being young, if you think... I'd say that's probably because you're not choosing the right creators or there's a bit of a stereotype around that. We do see a correlation. Basically, for every YouTube video, we'll have a trackable link in the description. So every product that's featured, you can click on it and the creators say, hey, if you want to learn more about this or if you want a discount code, click on this link. And then obviously there's a huge traffic spike directly through that. Other clients as well, like uh, Fast Host, we spoke about earlier, see huge um, Google search surges when we release content, which they're really excited about because they spend a lot on pay-per-click. So yeah, there, are, there is a link, but you have to tailor the messaging in the video very carefully. So you make sure that one message that you want, whether that's sales or whether that's, I don't know, learn more, whichever you prefer, make sure that is, is included in the segment that explains. 
So okay. make sure your messaging is really careful and then you should see that spike. Okay. Another one from John is about OnBuy again. Cass, it's following on from Dorset being a champion for OnBuy. How can we emphasize the local content on a platform such as OnBuy? It's a tricky one. I mean, obviously, OnBuy is a is an international product, and it, and it makes it quite quite difficult for us to do anything because we, we're catering for such a large audience. And actually, most of our buyers are in London and whatnot. But when we're talking about doing something with Dorset, it, it's a, it's a tricky one. I mean, I don't know how we can embrace local communities better to really create, you know, a bridge for OnBuy and Dorset um, to have a, a hand-holding, let's say, that would really play to OnBuy's strengths and really help Dorset as a as an area, you know, be recognized for tech and, and tech growth. One thing I will say is as we've been growing, you know, the amount of investors and in international e-commerce companies that we deal with, big players, multi-billion dollar companies, that they say, oh, where are you based in London? And we're like, no, we're not in London, we're in Poole. Uh, oh, where's Pool? Oh, in Dorset. Where's Dorset? It's like, oh my goodness, this is hard work, you know. But this, this is what happens a lot while we're on calls. So we, we're, we're introducing Dorset all the time, you know. We're bringing Dorset up all the time. I'm not sure is the answer, you know. I'm open to suggestion on this one. More than happy to open up a, a you know, comms with anyone on LinkedIn that might have ideas or come up with ideas. More than happy to have that. Um, and Jenny, I'll just throw that one to you. Um, just in general, how can businesses in their campaigns and in their content, you know, um, promote local, I guess? Yeah, there's a really big trend for global at the moment, like global aims with local implications. I mean, it's a buzzword that I'm sure will. Um, everyone's going to love <laughs> those other new buzzwords. What we're recommending at the moment, so YouTube does not have city level data for influencers. So you don't know where their creator's audience is. You know country, not city. But Instagram does. So often we're using their Instagram data to find out where their audience really are based on that local level. And then highlighting for brands local initiatives. So if you know someone has a kind of 10% of their audience from Manchester, when, when Nike talks about brand values, they can say, by the way, we supported this small football team. That wasn't a joke about United or City, I was just saying as an example um because they're doing a lot to support small local teams so there's a lot you can do by tailoring the message and most people want global reach but it to feel local so if you can do something like that you can uh or local favorites we did this with a campaign with Trainline. we had creators talk about somewhere near there near where they lived that was kind of a hidden gem so as people came out of lockdown and travel was allowed they'd say hey i'm i'm really excited to support this tea shop in Brighton or I'm really excited to go here don't go to Canberra Sands go to where I recommend so trying to showcase local like you get the overall brand messaging in there but then you get local highlights which I think is probably a really nice and effective way to do it thank you um sorry Sammy I'm aware that we sort of left you out of these questions but the next one is for you um it's what's the difference between 360 content VR and AR Oh, a fun one. Uh, so um, I'll do, so VR and 360 first. So virtual reality is basically when you put on a headset or the piece of plastic that you see people put there on their heads, your entire world around you is changed. So you're immersed within a brand new world. So if you look up and down, you look all around, you look down everywhere, that world is brand new to you. 
um, and it's not the reality that we're in. Most uh, VR is interactive, so you could have controllers, which means that you could pick up something in the space and you could throw it, and you could also walk around the space. 360 video is just very, very basically, very basic in terms of 360. So you're in the middle, 360 goes around. You can still look up, down, all around you, but you can't physically interact with that space. Um, you might be able to click, sort of go or stop, but you can't move in that space either because it will move with you. Um, so that's 360 um, and VR. So 360 is kind of your low end starter. Um, I've made some 360 films in the past and they're really straightforward and nice and easy to make. And then VR is obviously a, a step up. Um, augmented reality is that I, I like to describe it as layering on reality. So if you use like an iPad or your mobile phone, you can have something that will interact with the space around you or layering on top. So a lot of people like to relate to like Pokemon Go and stuff like that, but it could be all sorts. So there's um, physical headsets out there like the HoloLens um, from Microsoft and things like that, which are just layering on top of everything. And you can interact with those physical objects which are placed on top. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that does make a lot of sense. So someone else has asked, how do I get my consumers to access a VR marketing strategy? Do I have to post headsets? Again, it depends on who your audience is. So I would engage with um, somebody that does um, immersive strategies, me, um, <laughs> or someone similar to me, um, and we can talk it through to you. So, for example, if um, uh, a lot of people start out with doing 360 content because it's one of the quickest and easiest way of distribution because you can pop it on YouTube. If you are looking at something a bit more complex and you are having to send out physical headsets, that's something that a lot of businesses do. Again, that is a costly thing. That's why events and conferences were a huge way of um, uh, sharing your new content and actually getting it to the audience. Um, you know, pop-up uh, events, cinemas, things like that. So if you are planning on sending headsets out to people, uh, one way I would look at it is look at the enterprise version of headsets. So, for example, if you're going to look at Oculus, which most people go to um, for buying or just using that particular headset for content, they do um, something called Oculus for Business, where they can work with you more directly. And you can do bulk buying and things like um, uh, logging into those headsets without having a Facebook account and stuff like that. So that's one way of looking at it. But again, it is how much you want to spend and how much you want to invest. You can do it in a way of if, for example, it's just a, a, a couple of clients, you could hire the headsets and you could send them out with the content on. That's another way of reducing your costs. We've just worked with a massive client that basically sent out, you know, bought 200 headsets and sent them out. And they, those people have kept those headsets and that's part of their their distribution process. So there's lots of options, but um, I would, again, think about how much you want to invest, who it's going to. And, yeah, have a conversation with people working in this industry because they might be able to figure out something that's a bit more cost effective. OK, thanks very much. So next question. Cass mentioned the bump start that COVID-19 has given online commerce what are your views about future city centers shopping malls high streets what is the vision for what these spaces will look like in five years so I guess all of you could answer that but if we start with you Cass yeah I mean you know e-commerce and and COVID COVID was like a catalyst for essentially what was happening in the in the high street 
and brought to an end a lot of, um, I believe, hope for some uh, high street retailers. And we, I'll answer this in another way. OnBuy had been working for the past 18 months to develop a solution called Market Collect. It was something we were planning to launch in 2021, which would allow high street to really connect to online consumer and try and bridge the gap between e-commerce and high street so that a consumer could try and find a product online and, and it would try and give them suggestions that they may be able to go and collect today from high street. Still a great product, but you know, I think what's happened is if a retailer hasn't embraced e-commerce now, um, a typical goods retailer, a, a type of product that would suit e-commerce, you know, they, they then really, you know, when are they ever going to embrace it? This, this was the time that they really needed to, to really sustain. I see the high streets changing and I've made predictions on this already. I, I've said that the, the high street, I think, is going to turn more to an experience than a necessity. You know, the high street at the moment is more about going out and you'll you'll see more food places, more drink places, more local distillery, brewery type things, you know, wine bars, cheese. My local area's got a cheese court, a cheese restaurant. This is a place I have a house up north. And even in Penn Hill where I live, you know, the, the, there's, there's more eateries. Retail's been swapped with eateries. But I also see that, you know, retail as in product retail, isn't going to end. There's going to be two retailers that I believe are going to do really well from this. One is the the expensive commodities, you know, the, the jewelry, the handbags, the shoes, the, the expensive things that people want to feel, touch, and see, that, that the idea of spending a considerable sum through the internet to not know what the quality of that product is going to be when it arrives is really not what desires people to buy it. But an afternoon viewing shoes, handbags, watches, diamonds, things, followed by, you know, a trip to the wine bar is an experience. It's not just a necessity online. And I think retail is going to shape that way. The other kind of retail that will do well are really monopolized retail. You see, when you, when you see a high street and uh, there's only one clothing shop, only one shoe shop, you know, everyone, if you need something now, you've got to go and get it. You can't wait two, three, four, five days, even same day delivery. That's not available everywhere. And it's not available on everything. And certainly not for multiple sizes and things like that. So you're going to start to see that while five shops close, one will remain. And, um, you know, so the high street will, will stay, it will just evolve. Um, and I'm not saying to retailers that have lots of competitors on a high street to stay in business as long as possible to become that remaining one, because, you know, I think you need to evolve, but yeah, it's a really interesting time that COVID has just effectively, you know, accelerated this and uh, we're, we're watching and we're hoping because I'm actually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not pro e-commerce as such. I very much enjoy the experience of going shopping. And I think this is why malls will probably do quite well as well, because again, it comes down to being, an experience, not an experience when you start out in the rain. So, you know, it's uh, definitely experience shopping is my view. And Jenny, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think the experience, so people, when they came out of lockdown in London, the first thing they did was a lot of them like go to Liberties or Selfridges. That was the shop they missed was like that big luxury experience. And then, I, I mean, I've noticed as well, a lot of like the community WhatsApp groups, people are trying to think very locally and the brands that came out of and the shops that came out of lockdown doing really well were shops where they made it like a, a, a cohesive community mission to support them. 
So we had, I had like a local bakery in Dalston that people would turn up in queue for an hour in lockdown with rucksacks and fill their rucksacks with bread and then go home. It was like the hipster Mecca was to go and support this bakery. But it's because on social, they were like, we are not letting, we're not giving in. Like, please come out, show us you care. I think they did better in, under lockdown than before. I know other like restaurants that similarly, they started selling things because their message on social media became help support us. We're all in this together. We're changing how we're adapting. And then they said these restaurants that made huge amounts of money from wine said they did better under lockdown and made were more profitable under lockdown than when they were open as restaurants. And I just, it's unbelievable. But if you can create a sense of community cohesion or an experience around your retailer, you you could be okay. Because that's what people want to feel like they're part of. Everything else, as much as people say they... um, Obviously, like they say they like community, they say they like small suppliers, but they also like next day delivery. So people are very impatient for a lot of their goods. But um, I think, yeah, luxury and, and this community cohesion piece behind shopping small, independent, as long as you harness it, it could do quite well. Yeah. And and Sammy, anything else to add to that? What do you see the spaces will look like in five years? I think well, Brighton's been a, quite an interesting example, actually, because they, I mean, I mean, we've got, you know, we've got things like the lanes and things like that. And here it has been very much like Jennifer's been saying, very much on the kind of community side of things. So there's been, we've been seeing a lot more kind of pop-ups on the street physically, which are actually the retailer shops in the, in the shopping centre coming out and actually being like, hello, <laughs> we're still here, but offering things more like, um, you know, offering uh, what we call like boxes, like gift boxes and things like that. And sort of, you know, being much more part of the community and going, we're here. How do we support you? I live um, quite close to the centre and there's a couple of restaurants literally just around the corner from me. And a lot of them were almost you know, giving back as well. So there's a couple of um, little Italian restaurants that were like, had a little table out the front going, we've got spare onions or pasta that they weren't selling, you know, right in the middle of lockdown. So things like that and going, we still exist, but we're also very aware that everybody's going through like the same thing right now. So Mm. I thought that was quite um, interesting. And the same with Cass in terms of like the, the experience side of thing is something I, I really do believe in. And I think, there might be a kind of a time where especially big shopping centers and things are going to have to think about how they get people back in. You know, there was, um, for me, there was a couple of things that happened before lockdown. So in Basingstoke in the shopping center, they had, um, one of the, I think it used to be blacks where I used to work there, uh, years and years and years ago. And the uh, shop had been empty for ages and they filled it with, um, uh, the Philharmonia Orchestra went in and they filled it with lot like a it was like a mini museum but they also had a VR experience in there and I thought that was fascinating because I was just like oh I had no idea that you know that was a thing that Basingstoke Shopping Centre was interested in but it was something else to add to that kind of you know reminding people that you know you can come back in here and this is another thing to add to it I mean I don't have much experience in in this area but it is it is really interesting and um yeah i got my fingers crossed for a lot of the local places around here that they'll they'll survive and they'll they'll think of other things to kind of keep people coming coming back cool there's still more questions to go but unfortunately we're gonna have to uh end it there so i'm really sorry if we didn't get around to your question but i just want to say a huge thank you to all of you three cast jenny and samantha thanks for being here today 
Um, and this is our last one of the week. So what a great way to end it. You know, we could have talked all day about these three things. So thank you again. And thanks to everyone. Thanks to Podcast Labs for making this happen. Um, thanks to all the speakers from this week. And thanks for all your questions. So thank you for having us. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Have a good weekend. Enjoy day. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed series one. We are at the end of the first series and we have loved chatting to all our guests and are ready to bring you a series two very soon. So see you then.